right, if I could have our younger children come join me down here at the front, get ready for Children's Church. Okay. Come on, we'll wait. You don't need to run. Okay, come on in, come on in. Let's make room. All right. Come on. Okay. All right, we got more coming. Come on, guys. Come on, we'll wait. All right. Okay. Very good. Good to see everybody today. I'm so glad that you are here. Are you ready to pray? Let's pray, okay? Let's fold our hands and bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Jesus, thank you that we get to be here today. We get to be with our friends. And most of all, we get to be with you. We pray for Children's Church that we would learn more about you and more about your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. All right. Very good. Yeah, we'll pray for you. Okay. Well, you want to get out your sermon outline. It says, Wisdom Marries Well. We, uh, we're in the book of Proverbs and sort of going through that topically. And uh, Proverbs has a lot to say on marriage. Um, and uh, I'm not going to cover most of that today, but rather going to focus in on this whole idea of getting married. Um, so, uh, just a few verses, uh, we'll come back to these, but very quickly. Proverbs 18.22 tells us, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 20, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Proverbs 31, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And the common thread in there is this idea of finding. Finding a husband, finding a wife. And that's what we're going to look at today, this idea of finding. And some of you are like, well, I already found somebody. Well, hopefully you'll hear something in here that will at least make you think. Uh, may make a few of you repent. Um, may may a few, make a few of you thank God that you've gotten over that. Um, so we'll see what happens. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We think we're people who are ready for marriage, who are happily married, who are models for marriage, and sometimes we are, and sometimes we aren't. Use this word this morning to get us to consider your wisdom. Help us to ask how we can better find our mates and how we can become better mates for the ones we found. 
So we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would make us people who value marriage, who value our marriages just as much as Jesus did. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, the first time I read through the book of Proverbs, I was a little surprised by how much it talked about marriage and how straightforward, uh, frankly, how blunt it was about the subject. It addresses married people, single people, faithful people, and unfaithful people. And one of the several subsets of marriage that Proverbs addresses is this process of finding a mate. And after hours of study, I have concluded that the wisdom of Proverbs uh, regarding the selection of a marriage partner can be condensed to four words. Don't mess it up. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, I think Proverbs would tell us not to worry if we shanked a golf shot or lost the family uh, heirloom or burned the Thanksgiving turkey or dented the car fender or flunked the final exam or said something really stupid to our boss, again. But Proverbs is clear, don't make a mistake when you're choosing someone to marry. Don't subject yourself to years of heartache and pain. Don't mess it up. Now, this could be, it doesn't have to be, but it could be a difficult sermon for those of you who are already married. If you're already married, much of this won't apply because you're already in a covenantal relationship. But hopefully it will make you think, and it will encourage some of you to make some changes. So why is this process of finding a mate such a big deal in the Bible, and particularly in Proverbs? In numerous passages, the Bible makes it clear that God intends marriage to be a lifelong relationship. That's why the stakes are so high. Why Proverbs uses such colorful language to remind us of what an unhappy marriage looks like. Proverbs 15, 17, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Anyone in a struggling marriage knows how painful it is to sit in a beautiful restaurant staring down at a juicy steak for which you lost your appetite. Who feels like eating with that person that you're sharing the meal with seems more like a stranger than a lover? And in those heavy burdensome moments. That distance between you seems more like a million miles than the width of a linen-draped table. Proverbs continues that theme with two famous or perhaps infamous uh, verses. Proverbs 21.9, it is better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Living in the corner of the roof might be bad. Thankfully, they had flat roofs uh, in those days. I tried to imagine living in the corner of the roof of my house and figured that was a short-term experiment. Um, but uh, Proverbs says it's nothing compared to living with a contentious spouse. Another proverb says, Proverbs 21:19, it is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Obviously, the same is true for a quarrelsome and fretful husband. The desert may be hot and miserable, but it's better than you get the point. The writer is letting us know in no uncertain terms, you don't want this. So how can this kind of pain be avoided? How can people end up in a lifelong marriage that offers love and intimacy rather than loneliness and heartbreak? Now to get started, 
we have to understand the Bible doesn't talk very much about looking for a spouse. It talks primarily about finding a spouse. So that leads us to ask the question, what does finding look like? What does finding look like? Which, of course, carries the corollary, what doesn't it look like? And again, the verses I read at the beginning, I'll just read the Proverbs 18 one. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, I was thinking this, and in our conference room at the church office, I have an entire wall filled with counseling books. And probably two-thirds of those books relate to relationships. Marriage, divorce, sex, dating, parenting, singleness, etc., etc. And I have a number of books that address premarital issues and premarital counseling. But there are very, very few books on this topic of finding a mate. One of the few is called Finding the Love of Your Life by Neil Clark Warren, written long before he became the eHarmony guy. I mean, he wrote it back in the early 90s. But in this book, he lists a number of deadly errors that people make that contribute to bad matches and poor decisions. Now, some of you are going to discover that you've already made some of these mistakes. And some of you wouldn't, weren't affected at all by them, and others were able to easily overcome them. And making one or two of these errors is probably not a huge deal. Making all seven of them probably is. And so if the Bible values finding a spouse, then it should be helpful for us to avoid some of these errors. I sort of have them listed as bullet points for you. And the first one is to take it slow. For more than two decades, I've encouraged couples to move slowly. Now, truth be told, most couples don't want to hear anything about moving slowly. They don't want to hear about applying the test of time to their relationship. And I'm including the whole time of dating, courtship, and engagement in that pre-marriage relationship. From the time you start dating to the date you get married, in the vast majority of cases, you need at least a year. You have everything to gain, nothing to lose, by developing your relationship over a longer period of time. And every month either affirms or erodes your confidence in the health of this relationship. Now, most couples resist this because they're afraid those feelings that they have will fade away. And that's the point. The feelings will fade away sooner or later. And that's because for most people, the initial feelings is much more about me than you. And that high-intensity emotion associated with the initial attraction is going to settle into something else. And the question is, what? What is it going to settle into? Will it become frustration and loneliness, or will it become a close, satisfying friendship? The older I get, the more strongly I feel that building a close friendship should come first. That's what's going to carry the relationship through the emotional highs and lows that are inevitable in marriage. And you need time to make that happen. So that's the first thing, take it slow. Second, grow up first. The second error people make is they're too immature for marriage. Now hear me carefully again. I'm not saying they're too young. It's surely possible. I'm saying they're too immature. I think it's rare for a person 
who's under their early 20s to be ready for the responsibility of choosing a spouse. Most people, not all, but most people are still in high school and college in modern day America have not yet developed the discernment to make such a decision. There are notable exceptions, and some of them are sitting here this morning. Now, most folks in high school and college are focused, however subconsciously, on two things. The first one is developing individual identity. Who am I? What do I value? What's important to me? And the second one is developing core competencies. What can I do? What am I good at? What career should I pursue? What should I study? And finally, and I think far more important, uh, but what many young adults are not focused on, is spiritual formation. Do I really believe in God? Is Jesus really Lord and Savior? Will I follow him? Where does church fit into all of this? And even if they've answered those questions as children, they often have to ask them again as young adults. And usually they ask them on a much deeper level, and they often change their answers and their views several times. And all these things come with very intense peer pressure and very intense parental pressure and very intense cultural pressure. And at times it seems like everyone is telling you who to be, what to do, and how to think. And in the midst of all of that, it's very difficult to make a lifelong commitment to another person without settling at least some of these other rapidly changing issues. So I think it's important to take time to grow up first. Next, I think our society has done us a great disservice by convincing us of the idea that we need to be in love with love. And that's the idea of being in love with the idea of being in love. You know, wouldn't it be awesome to be in love? It's the idea uh, that we're sold that finding the right person will fix everything else in your life. The idea that being married will end my loneliness, heal my brokenness, and ensure my happiness. And sad to say, nothing could be further from the truth. Walking down the aisle will not turn a chronically unhappy person into a positive, joyful one. We have to remember that it's two sinners who are saying, I do. And usually joining two wounded and broken people increases their challenges. Marriage is great, but most of the time, in and of itself, it won't solve all your personal problems. Fourth, closely related, we have to realize this isn't about pleasing others. And here I'm not talking about pleasing your future spouse, but about pleasing all the other significant people in your life, your parents, your best friends, your roommates, those nosy family members who constantly badger you. So when are you getting married? Have you found someone yet? How long are you going to wait? When are you two going to tie the knot? And virtually all of the single adult women that I have known can tell you they have heard and felt that kind of pressure. And the hard part is the only way to answer it is by finding someone. So for all the rest of you, back off. You're not helping. One of the unintentional negative consequences of all this pressure is the couples don't take the time to get to know each other. You need time to share some life experiences. It takes 
time to weather a tragedy together, resolve a conflict, compromise on plans, work through financial challenges, learn about each other's vocational wor world. It takes time to worship together and serve together and pray together. It takes time to get to know each other's friends. It takes time to get to know each other's families. It takes time to see how this other person reacts, speaks, behaves, relates to others in different situations. And when you don't take the time to get to know the other person, we often fail to have realistic expectations. I think this is the one that catches most couples off guard. Most of us assume that whatever we learned about marriage growing up is what everybody else learned about marriage growing up. If my parents modeled a good marriage, everyone had a good model. If my parents were totally dysfunctional, all marriages are dysfunctional. Now, we all know that's not true, but we often ignore what we know when it comes to marriage. If my parents had a lot of autonomy in their relationship, then we assume that I'll have autonomy. And even if I never actually think about it, I just assume. If my parents were extremely close and did everything together, then we'll assume that uh, we'll be close and we'll do everything together. And pretty soon you're thinking that he's distant and she's possessive. And all this means is that you have to talk first and talk a lot. I must say that again several times. Talk first, talk a lot. And think about all the things that come in when you're starting to put two people together. My job has business travel. How will that affect us? My parents constantly argued. How will we resolve conflict? My family always vacationed at the same place. Your family went somewhere different every year. What are we going to do? The Smiths look like they have a pretty good marriage. Let's talk to them. Ask them what works. There's a million questions and a million assumptions and a million misunderstandings. And having realistic expectations comes primarily from the process of deciding, not the decision themselves. So learn to talk first and talk a lot. Finally, having realistic expectations is understanding that each of you has broken places. I don't know about you, I hate buying a car. One of the things I used to do was to uh, get that car and take it to a mechanic and have them check it out. I wanted to know if that car had been in an accident before. Now today I know you can check a Carfax report. If you're buying a plane or a boat, you want to see the maintenance logs. And at some point you have to ask the hard questions of your future spouse, and to be honest, most of us don't. Where have you been hurt? What have you done to bring healing to that wound? Everyone has elements of brokenness. Everyone has wounds and hurts and painful experiences. I don't care how much you think those other people sitting next to you have got it together. They don't. None of us do. We all have baggage, and we all bring it into our relationships. So talk first. Talk a lot. Ask the hard questions. Listen carefully, pray more. Now, I know this is a long list of don'ts. Please don't think that you're the exception who can ignore this stuff, because you can't. But what about the positive side? We also have to ask, what does found look like? If we ask what finding looks like, what's found look like? What are the positives, particularly in one uh, leading uh, to marriage. I think there's a couple areas immediately come to mind that once you think you found that person, there's a couple things you need to be sure you get right. 
uh, before you tie the knot. And again, I know that not all of you have this in your marriage, those of you who are married. But I also know that most of you who don't have these things want them. And that you would want them for folks who are just starting out. So with that said, the first thing is the God factor. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Your relationship with God should be mutual. In other words, it should be a relationship you both share. 2 Corinthians 6.14, we read it in our responsive reading this morning. The Apostle Paul clearly instructs us, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Essentially, this means that a person who loves God and follows Jesus shouldn't marry someone who doesn't. And I know this is getting personal for some. I also know that there's lots of single Christians who hate this verse. Primarily because it eliminates a ton of people from consideration. And it increases the pressure, particularly for women, because now you not only need to find a good guy, you need to find a good Christian guy. And most Christian women think that good Christian men are few and far between. It's not always true, but it's true more often than it should be. And why is this important? Nothing confirms your identity, transforms your heart, or gives your life meaning as much as a deep faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing. Do you really want to marry a person who cannot relate to what confirms your identity, transforms your heart, and gives you meaning in life? So the whole God thing comes first. Second, the character factor. Character is one of those repeated themes throughout the uh, book of Proverbs because it applies to every area of life. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. At some very deep level, you have to be able to trust each other. One of the hardest things for couples to recover from is when trust is broken. It's not so much whatever sin was introduced. It's the idea of rebuilding, recovering trust. And this not only affects the marriage covenant, but so many other areas. Finances, one person is saving, the other spending. Parenting, one person's lax with the kids, the other's a disciplinarian. Friendship, one person chooses a few wise friends, the other picks the fun friends. Kindness, one loves to do things to help others, the other is more self-centered. All of these things reflect our character. And significant differences here can really, really hurt. Now, married people who have these things, a mutual faith and trustworthy character, will tell you that they matter a lot. And for those of you who aren't married yet, find out who those couples are and spend time with them. Learn from them, hang out with them, listen to them. And married folks, do you have any single people in your life? Are you secure enough in your home, your marriage, your community group to let younger people watch how you relate to your spouse? That may sound intimidating to you, but it might just be life-saving to them. So we've talked about finding a mate, key things to develop when you found that person. But we have to go back and ask, what is marriage? What is marriage? That's the third point. Not surprisingly, 
at least I hope it's not surprising to you, God the Father had a lot to say about marriage all the way back in Genesis. And I'll let you go back to those Genesis sermons to see what he said. But very surprisingly, it shouldn't be surprising, but for many people, apparently it is surprising, surprisingly enough. And the surprise is discovering that Jesus Christ, God the Son, repeated what God the Father said. Jesus upheld what God the Father said. Jesus emphasized what God the Father said. And what did Jesus say, repeating what God the Father said? That's so surprising. I'm amazed I even got through that section. Matthew 19, you know, must have been late and I was tired. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is answering the question, what makes marriage, marriage? What's the essence of marriage? It's clearly not just love and affection, although those are good things. But I get love and affection from my dog, not marrying my dog. And it's clearly not just having babies, though. Having babies is a good thing. But the rabbits in my neighborhood, at least the ones not killed by my dog, are having babies. None of them get married. I think we find the essence of marriage in verse 5. Jesus says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I like how the old translations put it, cleave to his wife. That word cleave literally means to make a covenant. It's the same word used when two sides of a cut heal together. They cleave together. It means taking a public vow of absolute commitment. And you're not married until that happens. It's so significant. This is how God describes his relationship with Israel in the book of Ezekiel. He has a whole passage about how unfaithful they are and the problem. And he says that I'm going to become a divorced person because you're leaving me. But right in the middle, he says, don't you remember when I passed by you again and saw you? Behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So it's the vow, it's the covenant that's the essence of marriage. One of the reasons I don't allow people to write their own uh, wedding vows is because inevitably they focus on the present. Oh, I love you so much. Okay. But a marriage covenant says nothing about the present. You take vows, which are like a higher form of promise. And promises have to do with the future. In a wedding, you're not so much declaring your present love, although, of course, that's the reason you know, uh, that you're getting married right now. But actually, in a wedding, you're promising future love. You're not just saying, I feel really tender towards you now. In a wedding, you're actually saying nothing about your feelings at the moment, at the present. In, in a wedding... In, in this wedding covenant, marriage covenant, you're saying, I promise to be tender, to be affectionate, to be faithful, to be serving 
from now on, regardless of your condition or mine, from this day to the last day. That's what a covenant is. You're not really talking about your feelings at all. To say I love you is not a covenant. To say I love you in front of the world is not a covenant. See, if the essence of marriage would be having babies, or if the essence of marriage were your feelings, then marriage would be a moment-to-moment -moment thing. But if the essence of marriage is a covenant, then it's a permanent thing, and what it does is control your future. I've said this before. The only possible way for you not to be controlled by your past, but to control your past, is through forgiveness. But the only way you can control your future and not be controlled by your future, or your hormones, or your genes, or your circumstances, is through a promise. The essence of marriage is a covenant vow. It's like a very high-level, permanent promise. Well, now that we know what that is, we have to ask, what is marriage for? What is marriage for? You might say, what's the purpose of marriage? Another way uh, might be to say, why do people get married? In ancient cultures, today in many traditional cultures, marriage is basically a business proposition. Essentially, uh, you didn't marry for love. You didn't marry uh, to have romance and emotional fulfillment. You got married because it helped your family status and security in the world. That's what it was. Today, in many parts of the world, that's what it still is. Family's everything. And the whole point is I'm going to marry whoever I can to help my family status and security in the world. However, in Western culture, it's very different. Today, people would say you marry for love. You marry for your own individual fulfillment. You marry somebody who's going to make you feel good about yourself, who gives you incredible affection and romantic love, and whom you find completely fulfilling. And the Bible says both of those approaches are wrong and probably, probably harmful in many ways. You know, one of the most famous passages about marriage is Ephesians 5. And I think it's one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. Because that passage, and the Bible says the purpose of marriage, I think, is gospel reenactment. Gospel reenactment. Look at Ephesians 5. I'm just going to read three verses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. Think about that. We actually sing a hymn that's based on those words. You probably have heard of it before. It goes like this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. That's the gospel. I think that's what Ephesians 5 is talking about. Jesus looks down from heaven. He sees we're shadows of what we're supposed to be. He sees us ruined by the fall in all of our flaws and all of our self-centeredness. But he loves us anyway and comes and gives himself to us. He dies on the cross, takes the punishment for our sins, and when we embrace him, he comes into our lives. And what does he do? Does he just bring forgiveness? 
No, it tells you here he does way more than that. It tells you throughout the Bible he does more than that. Romans 8 tells us those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What does that mean? Jesus is not in any way merely happy just to forgive you. I mean, if you love somebody, you want to do more than forgive them because you don't want them to keep going on the same way. You don't want them to continue to be uh, flawed or broken or doing stupid things all the time or harming themselves or hurting the people around them. You want them to be better. So what does Jesus do? He comes into our life and he does what we call sanctification. This gradual perfection, more and more getting us to die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the way the catechism puts it. Jesus comes into your life and he has a vision for your future glory and beauty. Jesus says, I know what you could be. I was there at your creation. You're just a shadow of what you should be. And it's incredible what you're going to be. Through my blood and through my sacrifice and through my service, I'm going to get you there. And anybody who's a Christian knows that when Jesus comes into your life through the word and through his spirit, he's constantly driving you to change, pushing you to repent and leave those things behind and move forward and become more and more like him. So what does that mean? What does that have to do with marriage? Well, that's the model. Now, I don't know if this is true for all of you, but the fact that you're part of this culture, I think I can say with some confidence that most people who are looking for a spouse are looking for a finished product. <laughs> you're looking for someone who's already beautiful, has it together, accomplished, maybe has some money. Looking for all that. None of that is gospel reenactment. That's a modern Western idea that the purpose of marriage is your individual fulfillment. Oh no, here's what we have. To fall in love with a vision for gospel reenactment forces you to look more deeply, much, much more deeply. When one spirit-filled person of one sex finds another spirit-filled person of another sex and you start to get attracted to what God is doing in the other person's life, you start to get attracted to the person that God is making that other person become. And to fall in love with somebody in this Christian understanding of marriage is to imagine yourself on the final day, the day of judgment, in which God destroys all death, all evil, all suffering. There's a new heaven, a new earth. Everything wrong with you falls off. Everything deformed and distorted about you falls off. You blossom into what you're supposed to be. You become everything you're supposed to be. And to fall in love with somebody is to imagine yourself being there on that day, seeing that person and saying, I always knew you could be like that. I saw it in you. Through marriage, I've been part of what God is doing in you. To fall in love with somebody is to see what God's doing in that person and be committed to that person's future self. And what is marriage? It means I'm going to do for you what Jesus did for me. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to lay myself out. I'm going to sacrificially serve this other person. I'm going to put their needs ahead of my own needs. That's what Jesus did. And I'm going to help to bring about, be a vehicle for what God's doing 
in that person's life. That's the purpose. A covenant commitment to the ongoing reenactment of the gospel in the life of another person. It's a commitment to say to that person, I'm going to be there for you and I'm going to do for you what Jesus has done for me. Now, the big problem with all this, yes, there's always a problem, you know, is that while you're doing all this Jesus stuff for the other person, to the other person, sometimes it feels like you're a great big Mack truck. It's true. This is important. Here's a bridge. There's all sorts of structural defects on the bridge. You can't see them. They're hairline fractures. Nobody can see them. But then this great big five-ton Mack truck comes over the bridge. And when it gets on the bridge, it shows all the structural defects because it strains the bridge. And suddenly you can see where all the mistakes are and all the flaws are. The truck doesn't create the flaws. It doesn't create the weaknesses. It reveals the weaknesses. And when you get married, your spouse is this great big Mack truck coming right through your heart. Now, before you got married, other people tried to tell you about those defects. Your parents tried to tell you. Your roommates tried to tell you. You weren't in covenant with them. You could write it off. You weren't so intimate and close that it really created problems for you, your selfishness, your pride, uh, your fear, your bitterness, your worry. You were never, even with your parents, in such an intimate relationship that those differences created massive problems for you. On top of that, if they told you about them too much, you could just ignore them and eventually leave. You know, there's no covenant, there's no lifelong commitment, there's no vow. When you get married, it brings out the worst in you. When you get married, you find out being in that close quarters those sins, those structural flaws, all get brought out. The real mistake people make, almost always, is you feel like the conflict that marriage has brought into your life is conflict with your spouse. Not at all. The power of marriage is that marriage brings in you, uh, into your life confrontation, not with your spouse, but with yourself. Marriage forces you to look in the mirror. I mean, marriage sort of grabs you by the scruff of the neck and shoves your face into the mirror and pushes it into the mirror and says, look at these. The most wonderful thing about marriage, the way marriage helps you escape from your sins, is relatively speaking, marriage is somewhat inescapable. You can't just walk out. Yes, you can, but it's very hard and very difficult. Even in this society, it's tough. What happens is your marriage will, for the first time in your life, show you all your warts and all your flaws in ways that you can't escape them. And ultimately, you're there, your face is against the mirror. The only thing you can do is cry out to God and say, Lord, only you can help me. And that's the beginning of your healing. That's the beginning of your healing. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. 
Thank you, Father, for giving us what we need in order to deal with this big thing called marriage. We need the gospel to be unmarried well. We need the gospel to be married well. We need the gospel to keep from making our good marriages into idols. And we need the gospel to keep us from making our troubled marriages into places where we cannot thrive or live or even breathe. We need the gospel to deal with being married or to deal with being unmarried. And if we do, if we know the covenant love of Jesus Christ and that he is by the power of the Holy Spirit making the gospel real in our lives, real to our hearts, then we can handle these things and not merely survive but thrive and we can do it together. Jesus, thank you for giving yourself to us. Give us all these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive God's blessing from Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. God bless you. I'll see you in two weeks.